Welcome to the Ace Podcast with me, Pete Perfides, the latest in an occasional series of tete-a-tetes, centred mostly but by no means exclusively around music with some of mine and Ace's favourite human beings. I'm a big fan of the person we're about to meet. She's been standing apart from the crowd ever since she was voted the most unique student in the senior... (laughs) in the senior superlative section of Venus High School yearbook. She lived a peripatetic childhood, part of which was spent in Berlin and Moscow on account of her dad's fascinating job. Young love propelled her to London in the 1980s, and although that relationship did not stay the course, her love of London seems to have because she's still here. She was a successful dancer in the late 80s and early 90s and worked with The Fall and The Pet Shop Boys before she landed on our TV screens once a week, co-hosting The Word and later on Pyjama Party, which isn't as well remembered, but I thought it was great. In 1999, her utterly magnificent memoir, Shooting from the Lip, emerged to critical hosannas and in this century she's diversified her portfolio. Her expertise and enthusiasm spans both music, she's hosted excellent documentaries about power pop and yacht rock, and also perfume, the latter passion being channeled into her website and her YouTube channel, Katie Puckrick Smells. And that must mean that I'm talking to Katie Puckrick. Hello, Katie. Hi. Wow, I hope I can live up to that fantastic intro. Thank you very much. Well, let's see, shall we? I like the hosannas, the, the idea of hosannas. I always like to get hosannas in where I, where I can. It's one of those funny words that um, it might be Greek. Hosanna. You tell me, Greek man. <laughs> <laughs> I think it might be more Latin. All it right. It fe- feels Latin to me. You know, they, there's a, a common element there. But all I know is that growing up Catholic, there was a lot of hosannaing mm. in church. Hosanna in the highest. Yeah, the, we had a is, we had a hymn we sang at school called "Sing Hosanna." Was that one of yours as well? Um, Hosanna! No, we just we didn't incorporate the word "sing." We just sang it. We didn't have the instruction in right. the song in the lyric. We just burst in, burst out with our hosannas. Right. Okay. Yes, I thought there was a folk song as well, but I'm thinking about "Oh Susanna," which is an entirely different thing. <laughs> what about if Susanna got together with Hosanna? <laughs> I think you're on to something. It is. They could form a, f- a female power pop duo, just like one of the, the the many featured on the new first product placement, Ace Compilation. Was it Girls Go Power Pop? Girls Go Power Pop. I cannot wait to hear that, but I already have a bee in my bonnet about it. I know, and I was, I was going to ask you about this. <laughs> okay, so bee, bee number one in that big bonnet of mine. Um, so power pop, yes, women do great power pop and girl groups have done it, but it's really a boy's genre mm. because it's about losers. Um, the, the, the songs are always so like uplifting and triumphant, but it's always about the young man's lack, his limitations, his pining for somebody who's way out of his league and... Girls don't really do that, and they're not. That's not really lyrically their concern. Certainly not in their power pop songs. Hmm. Um, but I salute Ace for looking around and like reaching down the back of the pop music sofa and finding the spare change that uh, that does count as female power pop. 
this uh, this to me is a very fascinating perspective on power pop because I I enjoy listening to a lot of it, but of course I'm I'm British or at least have grown up in Britain, so I probably have a little bit of an erroneous perception or take on power. You know, I think it's very hard for a lot of British people to see the exact kind of cultural hole in which it it sort of fits in, and um, and I guess. And you're, I know you're a kind of, you've made playlists on Spotify, or at least someone might have done on your behalf, I think. On my behalf, I think. But I've done Power Pop specials, many specials on Six Music over the years. Yeah. And it's sort of, it's always surprising to me that it never sort of commercially does that well as a genre when it's just, it's such a catchy genre. It's made for radio, Pete. So the thing about Power Pop is that it's suburban America's punk rock. Uh, it was truly a regional movement for American kids. You could do it in your garage. Um, because it was American, uh, we were a little bit more focused on less on the rebellion and more on uh, showing off. So that's where the chops come in. So it's not really like punk rock where in the British sense where you it didn't really matter that you couldn't play your instruments. And of course, America did have American punk rock, which was what was happening in New York City and in, to lesser extent, some places dotted around Los Angeles, Cincinnati. Uh, but the whole idea of power pop in America was uh, four boys getting together after school, you know, rocking out in the garage and releasing, like self-releasing these singles, seven-inch singles, um, uh, you know, by themselves independently and then mm. like taking them over to the record local record shop and putting them in there. So it really was a regional mo- movement where um, bands that were known in Ohio were not known in um, Georgia. Mm. And you, um, was that on your radar at the time or something you retrospectively got into? It was on my radar at the time. Um, and just a, a quick definition, Power Pop, it's basically the, the love child of uh, the British invasion. So the, hmm. the music that, the, the Power Pop kids made music that they were too young to hear the first when it came out originally so it would have been uh the who uh it would have you know the meaty beady bounciness of the who and then it would have been the melodicness of uh the beatles and uh then of course there would be beach boys harmonies and all of it was just like two and a half three minutes long and it was always about pining for somebody they couldn't get and it was on my radar because um i'm old enough thank goodness to have lived through and experienced firsthand a lot of great musical movements in the in the 70s so i heard it when i was in junior high so cheap trick um actually beginning of high school um uh uh, the cars and you would have been i can imagine if you'd gone to the same school as say red cross you would have probably been best friends wouldn't you um it depends on yeah it's a funny thing because i'm thinking about my high school in northern virginia which was so uh divided up by uh like i was a little like cross cross tribal there but um definitely you had your I was in the drama fags department. We were, the jocks called anyone who was into theater drama fags. We were like, okay, that's it. That's us, I guess. Hmm. Um, But the interesting thing about the drama fags is that we did have a lot of jocks who, like, we needed token, like, dumb but cute boys to be the lead, like to be Joseph and Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. So we did have a lot of outliers. And so if Red Cross were in my high school, um, they probably would have been drama fags, uh, and and maybe they would have been like the the cool kids in jazz lab because those were the kids that were like a little too boho to be in the school band, so they were in mm. jazz lab. <laughs> and there were. Um, let's talk a little bit about the. Actually, before we do that, yes. um, one one of the one of the great loves of your life 
in the early part of your fantastic book. And it's such a fantastic book. And I make a direct plea to people listening right now oh. that this book, this book, which came out 20 years ago, I loved reading this so much, Shooting from the Loop. It thank is. You. Why was it not optioned as a film? This is. This oh. should have been a film. <laughs> um, thank you very much. I uh, have a theory, or maybe just a tragic excuse about that. It. It. So this is a memoir, coming of age memoir. You know well. <laughs> Broken Greek uh, is your your offering in that uh, department, and it. What you know? It's funny. There's pathos. It's sad, serious. It's rock'em sock'em. Lots of advent, you know, youthful adventures. Uh, and it came out at the end of the 90s, and it was really like one and a half minutes, 90 seconds before this whole trend that we're still in mm. for memoirs. Mm. So memoirs weren't really a thing then. It was really about chiclet, and that's how the, my book deal came about because uh, the editor thought I might be a candidate to churn out something like that. And as I started to c get my thoughts together, I realized oh, I, I don't know how good I am at just making up a narrative. I'd much rather write first person like just my goofy mm. my, my goofy youth and kind of turn it into a funny story so I kind of preceded that and then also it was right before it was uh, several years before social media and I feel like it just kind of slipped through the cracks you know mm. there was a certain and the other thing was I think the expectation was me as somebody who had hosted various now considered iconic pop culture shows that it would be a kiss and tell mm. it would be like oh you know what really happened you know, backstage in the dressing room at the word and who was a bitch and who was wonderful and, you know, who had the biggest ding dong. So I didn't deliver that so much. Uh, so I just, that's my excuse. Well, you, you don't need, I mean, I, I, that's your reason, I get, but that's, that. you don't need an excuse because it's just such a great, and, it, and it's such a, you're, you are such a fantastic writer. I mean, you oh, are like, you. The, you, you, as a stylist, you are you just kind of burn off the page it's and and um and you you evoke this era of uh of a of a of a pop cultural america cover post war america which is just a sort of blizzard of color all the time and you see it in the supermarket and you see it in music and you see it on television and so it's a real it's almost like you know we there are writers that we kind of refer to as kind of gonzo journalist or gonzo writers and and part of the shtick of being a gonzo writer is that you have had to live close to the edge and you have to have taken loads of drugs and stuff. But I think the true spirit of, of, of gonzo writing at its best is just this just kind of hyperdrive of this sensory kind of overdrive, uh, unabashed sensory overdrive. And uh, and I'm looking at a page. Mm. I, I, before we started recording, I shouted the word bun at you and it might have scared you slightly. <laughs> But because but I've made a load of notes on kind of things, um, and there's this paragraph where you sort of describe um, the the kind of confectionery that was available. Are we? Do you know what I'm talking yeah, about? Yeah. Now I'm remembering it. It was in when I lived in South Bend, Indiana. Right. And there's just this. Just the names are amazing. So you got. A, Pixie sticks, good and plenty, which are licorice pebbles here, you say. Yes. Sugar daddy, sugar mama, uh, sort of goobers, raisinettes. I mean, what were your, it just goes on and on. And you tell, tell us what, 
yeah, candy corn transmogrified into pumpkin shapes at Halloween. These and just that is just a, such a vivid it's sort of evocation. Well, I I would love to take the credit for uh, the gonzo nature of just listing things that actually already existed. I you know I didn't name those things, but I did consume them. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, but it kind of goes on. It's sort of you know they're just lovely sort of phrases. Like I think you describe a lot of these snacks at one point as gusto for my gutso, which is such a, <laughs> a great phrase. Oh God, I don't remember writing that. You know, I have to say that um, I do have a very kinetic way of writing. I'm a dancer originally by trade, by trade and training and temperament. Rhythm is a dancer. And uh, are you human or a dancer? I don't know. Still trying to figure that one out. <laughs> but um, I love uh, I love music. I, I'm a very musical dancer and I'm a musical writer. So when I'm writing things, I'm always thinking about how they'll sound tripping off the tongue. Yeah, which is a great, which, you know, to a degree, not as well, but definitely something I've, I sort of try and do when I'm just in, excited, actually. Yeah. Um, don't, your love of donuts is very thoroughly documented. I brought some donuts <laughs> along, Katie. Can I, I was sort of uh, eyeing these and it, oh, I'm looking in here and I see the telltale, um, very appealing sign of lots of icing. Okay, icing, icing is a big plus yeah. for you. Yeah, um, like, this is so thoughtful. Would you, do you care to break bread with me yeah, at yeah. a certain... Um... Yeah, definitely, you know. Okay, I'm going to... Uh... So, we, obviously, I had to choose on, on both our behalf. Oh, uh, so what, I'm thinking that you might like the fruit... Uh, filled one is that one for you I'm easy I I just I really I was just thinking what are the four and I don't know how uh, you know you have to tell me how well I've chosen yes. what are the four most likely flavors that you would like um, you're so very thoughtful well just to back up for um, anyone who's wondering what is my obsession with food and particularly donuts um, I I mean the the not so fun side of things is just that um, as I got into my teen years and kind of understood or it had made itself aware to me how tense home life was uh, in my case just because my parents were at war with each other which is kind of an ongoing cold war and you know some kids have outlets that are more like uh, you know the classic juvenile delinquent type thing or you know maybe they you know have a develop a a, a youthful heroin addiction or, you know, something. Anyway, my little getaway plan was just eating donuts until I fell into a coma. So basically it was just a way to check out yeah. for, for a little bit. And I, uh, yeah, I was a bit of a glutton. That was my teenage eating disorder. So, you know, just totally cliched. Um, but they were, um, yeah, so my, uh, in answer to your question, uh, caramel Kind of caramelly donuts or mapley donuts, those would be my favorite. But anything, you know, they're all my friend. I guess it's just a, it's an uncomplicated form of joy. And, you know, when you're in an emotional climate that can be quite complicated, yes. then just that root one, root one pleasure is, is not to be sort of underestimated. You're, um, you, the first road you lived on had a great name, Susquehanna Drive. Yeah, Susquehanna. Susquehanna. So, so I'm just going to eat um, some of this donut. So here. I'm just going to I'm just going to make my questions longer to give mm. you a, a chance to eat. Uh, to to talk. so your um, mm. you had a very religious uh, father yes. who was a, a polyglot pilot. Is yes. that right? Yes, he was, and clearly not a shy man because he he had a, seemed to have a list of. Um, 
traits uh, such as slipping into a British accent on occasion. Oh, n- nippy to sippy, he'd like to say, which is not me. Like, it's not a very good. Oh, rather. That was another one of his. <laughs> rather nippy to sippy. That's when it was cold outside. Um, and that's is that a, a, a sort of a, a quasi British affectation? Yeah. Um, so Augustine, he went by Augie. That was his name. He's no longer with us. He's he's gone to his reward. Hmm. But he's kind of the defining. He's the character. He's the hero in that book, um, and he was such a gosh darn character. He was really pretty much the rock star in his family. He was he came from an uh, immigrant family who came over from Eastern Europe at the turn of the 20th century, and yeah. he was number ten. He was the youngest in a family of 10 kids. And uh, he went to West Point and became a uh, pilot who participated in the Berlin Airlift, Hmm. which brought provisions to the newly walled off city of Berlin that the Russians had blockaded right after World War II. And then he went down a path of um, going to spy school and then working in intelligence. So that's why we ended up living in Berlin during the Cold War and Russia and Moscow. During in the early seventies, and um, but he was a, a outrageous character, very handsome, uh, a real dynamo, short, like five foot six, hmm. um, muscly, vain, uh, sporty, uh, very competitive with himself and with every with his children, uh, with everybody else, and he also kind of a pain in the ass because of, I mean he's the things that made him delightful also made him kind of hard work um, and also. Um, kind of uh, you know hard to be married to hard to be married to for my mother yes yeah yes um and um you um you said earlier on that you you know you called him sort of the hero of the story yeah did he see that did he read the book when he when it came out he he didn't read the book he couldn't bring himself to do it and i i confess that i am uh was probably relieved my mother read the book um and she and I was too chicken to even have a conversation with her about it because, um, and this is something I wanted to talk to you about because mm. you've re- written a book while your parents are still living. And to me, that was like the biggest force field of anxiety over, yeah. you know, the, the idea of them, like complete strangers reading the book, no problem, but the idea of my parents reading the book. And so I got the book out and my sister read it, first of all, and she validated it. She said, all of that is accurate and that, you know, well done. And that is how I remember it too. And then, so my mom read it and she had one comment to make, which was, I won't go into it now, but she, anyway, she had one comment like that wasn't, you know, your assessment was not correct. And it was this, it was like this, it wasn't like that. Right. And I didn't even have the gumption to go, Oh, like to turn it into a conversation. Cause I was just like, Oh, okay. I guess I dodged a bullet. Yeah. But my dad, she went on to say to my father, you know, you you're the hero of Katie's book, and I think he he's so con, he was so conservative, um, even though he was someone who was so kind of showoffy and dynamic and vibrant and funny and piss taking. But he also just I think was horrified by the idea that he would have to confront me telling stories about how I lost my virginity and, uh, you know, personal things about our family and why not. So he, I remember one day going, visiting their house in Northern Virginia where they lived. I was visiting over from London and I saw my book sitting on his sofa in his study and I just quietly picked it up and 
put it put it into my bag, never to be seen again by yeah. him. So he'd never read it. It's, um, I guess, the thing about being a, a patriarch in a family is that you're you're in control of the show, and when you when you when you are depicted in a book, then that's something that you're not in control of, mm. and that I guess that must be quite hard. Um, and um, but if you're going to be a larger than life character, then you know, part of me thinks that you're going to have to take the larger than life rough with the larger than life smooth. That's mm-hmm. what, that's what I keep trying to tell myself because obviously I have conflicted feelings about having done a version of the same thing in uh, in my book. And how did that go over with your dad? Um, better than I expected. I think it changes all the time. I think you almost go through five stages of grief, you know, so there are some... Some some bits are sort of better than others, but um, and how does your mother take it? She loves it. Um, Did she feel like you were saying what she couldn't say, like you were like putting it on the line? Like there was an element of that, yeah. uh, definitely. And uh, I think if you're a a, a, a sort of a, a mother, a wife living through a certain era where men were a little bit more unreconstructed. What really helps later on in life is to feel that someone bore witness to some of the things that happened. But at the same time, I do feel very sympathetic. You know, well, sympathetic might be a bit of a disingenuous word, but um, I feel very. I feel like one thing I was at great pains to say in the book was he. What my dad wasn't particularly exceptional. He wasn't. You know, he was a lot better than a lot of other dads. He was that. He was just like most dads certainly from that background that's just kind of what they were like and um and so I, I you know I went I was at sort of a great pains to sort of say well let's think about why to our modern perception he might have reacted in a rather crass way to a certain situations that are depicted in the book well you know they don't have their extended family around them. They're under a lot of pressure. They're under a lot of economic pressure. You know, there are certain instances when my mother was ill in which he was the sole carer of two uh, children as well as having to run a chip shop. So he might have behaved uh, particularly incentive, insensitively in certain situations uh, that um, possibly out of fear or a kind of panic sort of situation. And when you... When you are an unreconstructed man from a certain background, then you just you don't have the tools to analyse your own emotions. You don't even know what emotions you're feeling half the time, and that's not necessarily to defend or justify behaviour that you know could have been improved upon. But at the same time, I think as modern people, we can do better than not take those things into account when we're appraising what what people might have done in certain situations in the past sorry that's rather a long no no it's all so interesting because um i uh want to uh uh echo to you that you were successful in in being very uh careful about contextualizing or you know like as much as you could like why he would have you know, not been the most sympathetic partner when your mother was in hospital recovering from having a hysterectomy. And um, he, so you're very sensitive about that. And and I'm curious, as I was reading this, these passages, I was curious to know whether he now, having read it, felt like he had permission to venture that that wasn't his best moment, 
or do you think he sort of shut down? Like, how how dare you point that out my limitation? Like, do, have you had a conversation about? Yeah, I think I think he wants to. You know, if he was here now, he'd probably kind of tell us about some of the really kind of cool things that he thought he did, or some of the kind of acts of generosity that he undertook. And that's fine. That's that's completely cool. You know, I um, I just I just had to sort of you know you have to you can't. You know, and one thing, one that's great thing about the way you told your story is you did it honestly. I, I got a kind of three hundred and sixty degree picture of a family that function that functioned not, you know, maybe not in that kind of nuclear family sort of kind of way. But then, very, I think very few families did. Certainly in that era where you know. You know the the whole the Marge Simpson thing about kind of taking all your desires and hopes and dreams and crushing and swallow making making them into a tiny little ball and swallowing them in the pit of your stomach never to return. That's the story of millions and millions of women in yes. that in that era. And Such it's it's really heartbreaking and and you just saying that it makes me feel. I mean, that is so true of my mother who uh, graduated from William and Mary with a you know a degree in, in making, you know, um, you know, theater design and fashion yeah. design. And, you know, I was I was lucky in that I was an outlet for all of her amazing talent. So when I was performing in theater groups and dancing as a kid growing up, she got to completely pour her expertise and, and make the costumes for the companies. And uh, I felt you know, so I—I I mean, that protected me from, to a certain degree, from the, um, the unpleasantness of home life, and and I have to say that I probably got more benefit of her tenderness than my older siblings because you know I provided sort of an escape for her. Yeah, yeah, and it's um, so that's the sort of, that's the deal, isn't it? If you're sort of um, you know, if you are going to sort of sort of suppress some of those sort of hopes then and you know the you know your husband or the the patriarch whatever is is going to get to but you know he's going is is going to be the one who can go back to work and not spend all day with the kids then the payback is really that when your kids are grown up you're probably not going to know them as well as your your wife knows her kids that's yes. just the that's just how it works if you're not if you don't get to put those hours in mm. because of how society is to a degree i'm interested in how um this is what fascinated me and of course that you've written this built this whole book around it the the um split the friction the gap the chasm between your dad's completely rigid masculine like macho old country ways and how sensitive what a sensitive little boy you were you were so sensitive and not not like a bruiser not like a little rough and tumble um terror tear away according to your telling and and yet he found it he and your mother together were able to give you space to be that way at least in your telling yeah i mean i i probably would have liked to have been the tough kid you know uh but um i just i failed singularly at that at that task so you sort of um and you know in your in your story you know that you you got a lot of sort of knockbacks as well there are sort of peer groups that you wanted to be part mm -hmm. of yeah. to varying degrees of success 
And then, you know, you 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 meant please do elaborate on this, but there is this lovely story about how in the um the you know, the the high school that you're at, the Venus Sky High School, which was in Virginia, right? Yes. Um you were you were voted the most unique student in the senior superlative section of the yearbook. Now explain to us what that means, really. Okay, so I, uh, in the yearbook, that is such an American thing. I don't know if you guys do it here yet, but you have, of course, your class photo that you take. You know, it's a whole, it's hundreds of pages, and it's, it, back then it was black and white pictures of each individual student. And then there would be sections, you know, like ex- extracurricular activities, and it would show you know, like candid snaps of the drama club, drama fags rehearsing, or, you know, the, the sports team, um, you know, running their, their drills and what have you. And then there was a section where it was the senior superlative. So the senior, which is the, the, the highest, the fourth year, you have freshman, sophomore, junior, senior. Um, and then people, it was like a way to kind of spin out the whole idea of who's the most popular. So I think they had, they would have had most popular, but then they had, you know, sportiest or, uh, you know, most studious or, you know, most like most likely to succeed, that kind of thing. So then they had this one category called most unique, which already it's just redundant <laughs> that, you know, unique is already the most unique, but I was voted along with my friend Bon Leg. Um, who I still am in touch with. Oh, wow. Uh, he and I were voted most unique, but really it was a backhanded way to say these freaks that we don't know what to do with. And so we're just going to, like, they already have made a spectacle of themselves just by being, like, wrong. And so, therefore, we're, we'll call them most unique. I mean, at least that was my perception at the time, but mm. I still was happy to have some attention uh but really i think it was kind of an acknowledgement that um i was uh you know like i was the designated like the like what's that little britain thing you know the only gay in the village or whatever so i was like the designated like quirky girl who (laughs) um it's funny you know like you end up i end up actually being an outlier, outlier, propelling myself out into the world. In this case, I ended up in London and then eventually in Hollywood. And you kind of, you know, you go into to a, a place like London or L.A. where you realize, oh, I'm surrounded by all the other most uniques, uh, <laughs> you know, who've all imported themselves. Yeah, like, yeah. hey, town, get, you know, <laughs> wait, wait till showbiz gets a load of me. And then it's like, Oh, yeah, and all the other... Well, you had a formative visit, didn't you, to Carnaby Street at the age of 12, was it, or something? Yes. And uh, you described that so vividly. Uh, you know, the, this that lovely kind of thing where you get a real outsider's sense of wonder at what, um, what's going on around you. What do you remember of that first... Well, um, actually, I was probably more like nine years old, but uh, so we stopped over. It was a stopover on the family was moving from uh, the Midwest in Indiana to Moscow, and it was a long trip, and so we had a few days in London, and it was completely... It was the early 70s, and I don't think that Carnaby Street had been... Uh, t- paved over with the crazy psychedelic orange and yellow, but it was definitely the time that had you know Lord, Lord John shops and and yeah. I got and it was all all the shops. It was just like you see in those 
uh, overused archive clips that keep popping up to illustrate, yeah. uh, you know, like, and then, Lon- you know, London went psychedelic, but it was all the Sergeant Pepper um, jackets, you know, Lord Kitchener valet type jackets in the windows and platform shoes. And I got my first pair of platform shoes here, which were uh, orange suede uh, with cork soles. And they were amazing. I mean, I just felt so grown up. And I distinctly remember there was a ad campaign for some airline. And the ad campaign was to show a, a luscious, um, you know, fuckable, um, is that, can I use that, that word? Yeah, uh, it's fine. S- stewardess. Uh, and it would say like, I'm Emily, fly me. Um, <laughs> so that was, I think it may have been, I can't even remember, it was Pan Am or whoever. And so there was one that said, I'm Joe, fly me. And that was m- my sister's name. And she was a few years older and absolutely like at that awkward, mortified, perpetually mortified teenage stage. And my dad had a Super 8 camera and he was trying to like to do the thing of panning down from the billboard to her and she was just running and hiding. Um, <laughs> but it was, uh, yeah, I remember London also, the other thing was, oh, you guys didn't, you didn't understand how to do fast food. You had this weird thing called a wimpy burger, yeah. which lived up to the name. Because there are a kind of a couple of weird parallels between my book and yours and I kind yes. of go on about wimpy bars. Yes. And um, so it was really interesting to see your... Your sort of take on it. I mean, it must have been surreal for someone from the States to come over and just see how badly we attempted to sort of do our version of it. Yes. Um, so I, for for a nine-year-old, I was pretty worldly because I had already, as a four, five, six, and seven-year-old, lived in Berlin and traveled to Spain and Morocco. So I'd been around, Pete. Mm, I'd mm. been around. But um, they were mostly like more unusual, like less Western to my eye, places. So to come to a place that, you you know, people spoke English, and then there were some recognizable artifacts from, you know, shared artifacts from our culture. Yes, I did feel like Wimpy Burger was like, you know, nice try guys, but like, you know, <laughs> a milkshake is not just, it's supposed to be thick and ice creamy, not just like wet. <laughs> not not wet and brown. You know, it's supposed to be, there's it's supposed to be something else going on there. But the brown one, that was the chocolate one. That yeah. was, that's okay. Insipid. It? it was just like chocolate oh. milk, whatever. <laughs> Yeah, it was a, the, the perception, and of course, it took a long time for Britain to get over this because I still have felt the same way when I moved here as an adult in the eighties, mid eighties. Very um, stuck in festival of Britain, like post-war, yeah. uh, you know, make do and mend. Uh, yeah, like ice being advertised. Like, hey, um, we sell ice. There was, <laughs> there was a great, great. De- 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 of the, you know, it's also the the the. You know the how an outsider sees things. So the, the, the you know these the, the, these almost arbitrary things that stick in your memory decades later. But yeah. but there was this detail of uh, have it, you know at the time I've forgotten that these existed. But you had them outside uh, news agents and sweet shops and these spastic statues. Yes. So just to clarify, <laughs> these are statues where these are. <laughs> These were There's no good way to like sell this, but these did exist, so don't yell at us about it. Go no, ahead. No, there was a charity called the Spastic Society of course. at the time. Yeah. <laughs> Only in Britain. <laughs> and um, so to explain to me what you mean by spastic statues. Okay, spastic statues. So uh, when I moved over here in, in 84, 1984, that is, um, oh, the decades are just rolling along. One of the things that caught my eye, my gimlet eye, were these um, 
I guess they were probably about like three feet tall, a meter tall, little uh, <laughs> statues of a, a wobegon little boy um, with maybe a brace around his his um, shin, like some sort of polio brace, or a little girl with a um, sunglasses on, or like something's wrong with her eyes. And the, uh, these little statues would be holding a box that had a little slot in the top where you could drop a coin and across brandished across the front of the statue would be, um, you know, spastic society. And so the thing that I just thought was so um, like uh, democratic, I guess, was like any kind of disability, uh, blindness, polio, uh, you know, injury, uh, just a general can't, make your limbs all do the right thing at the right time. It's all spastic. We're just calling it spastic. Easy. Just one terminology. Let's not get too fiddly about the details. But anyway, too bad about these little kids. Cute, huh? And like, please donate uh, 2P or whatever it is. And yeah. those took, I think, well, more recently, didn't um, Damien Hurst do a giant... This, when I say recently, because I'm elderly, I really mean like maybe 15 years ago. But um, Damien Hurst did this big spastic society statue. I, they possibly renamed themselves. And it's a great it's a great cause because those kids need a new brace or whatever it is for the, whatever unspecified ailment they have. But I do remember thinking you guys are brutal. I came to London and I thought <laughs> I thought the, U, the people in UK are not like tiptoeing through the tulips. They are just calling a spade a spade. Well, what happened after they were they were superseded by? Uh, I think it, there was a real, there was a realization that maybe these these statues weren't really giving weren't really incentivizing the act of giving money. So they got replaced by these these I don't know if you remember these little kind of glass topped no, these are uh, transparent domed. Uh, uh, sort of creations which uh, had a sort of you dropped a coin into the top of the glass dome and there was a spiral um, painted onto this uh, in, inverted sort of cone which was curved and so the idea is it would kind of create a weird illusion as the, your coin went round and round and round and it looked a little bit trippy as you watched your coin going round and round into the little hole in the middle so they 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 use. Oh, I missed that. I just I for me it was all about the the sad little children. Yeah, no, no, they had to they had to kind of improve on that yeah. um, for obvious reasons. So you were uh, you must get a lot of um, young children um, going to uh, from the states to Moscow in uh, in the mid seventies would have probably been pretty pissed off about that, but. Um, of course, you were into spying and stuff, weren't you? Into espionage. So this was this was probably like a promotion for you. Yeah, wasn't it? that's right. It was a family business. Um, I it, I had already been kind of I was I was pretty willing to up sticks at a moment's notice. I mean, of course, I missed my friends, but I had like I said, I was moved with the family to Berlin when I was four years old. So I kind of knew the drill. I knew that like dad's yeah. job meant that we had, you know, postings that would last for two to four years in any one place. Um, but before I'd moved to, to Moscow, um, my little, my friend Sue Montague and I in South Bend, Indiana, she lived across the street. She and I read a formative book, which to this day, I just I'm so grateful I read this book. It's called Harriet the Spy by Louise. Uh, I can't remember her surname, but it's easy to find. It's yeah. a classic children's book. And Harriet the Spy, now I look at the cover drawing, I think 
that little girl's a lesbian. Um, but she's like a little tomboy girl in a red hoodie and her, her like baggy jeans. And her whole thing is to keep a notebook hmm. um, and jot down uh, uh, very assiduously uh, all of her observations on everybody. So she just is very observant, looks at everybody in her life. Um, tries to puzzle out things that she doesn't understand because she's a little kid, like she's eight or nine, as I was when I read it. And that started me off on a lifetime of keeping a diary, so keeping a journal. And it got me interested in writing, documenting, commenting, judging. And then (laughs) that, of course, I had to have a spy route because Harriet the spy had a spy route. And so Sue Montague and I would um, have our designated, like, you know, stop three was up, you know, the tree at the end of the the path, you know, the secret path. Everything was secret. Or I'd be spying on my sister and her boyfriend, or I'd be, um, you know, listening to conversations that were far too adult for me uh, that were, you know, being undertaken by, uh, you mm. know, my mom's, my friend's mother or something. Yeah. And uh, my, Sue mentioned to me recently, she were in touch uh, on Facebook, and she said, oh, yeah, do you remember when we'd go, be on 8-Ball Trail, which is what we called it? Uh, so we'd be on this, on our spy route on 8-Ball Trail. And she said, if we pass each other, there was a tacit understanding that you did not make eye contact. You just ignored each other because you're you're doing business. So by the time I moved to Moscow uh, uh, before the school year there, when I started at the Anglo-American school, um, first things first, I had to establish a spy route. Of course, I was, you know, it was like bringing Colts to Newcastle. Like, um, like we were being spied on there. All the, and we soon soon learned that, you know, we lived in the American Embassy, and of course, the embassy walls were bugged, so you knew there were listening devices in there. And the con- the common thing was, you know, the kids thought it was hilarious if you walked into your flat and just called out. Hi, Ivan, because you knew that Ivan or Vlad or Boris or whoever were listening. So you you enjoy you liked being you know for you it was an audience which you seem to enjoy. Yes, uh, you know what child uh, does not like to be the center of attention or you know like to be listened to. So this is like a built-in invisible friend. Add to which, because I was so crazy about music and my huge advantage with being a music connoisseur and fan and glutton is that I had three siblings, older siblings. So I got to acquire their, their record collection and inherit their taste and listen to all of that that came before me from the beginning of rock and roll music. And then of course, embellish on my own. So I would be in my bedroom in Moscow, you know, dropping the needle on the latest Led Zeppelin and, you know, Uh. like smugly saying it would be like Led Zeppelin four. And then I'd like announce to Ivan in the walls, like, (laughs) Communism does not allow for rock music. Listen to what we have in the West. <laughs> of course, in subsequent years, a lot of those bands became quite popular in Russia. So um, it, maybe you were a catalyst for um, for that. Um, so you were through with your David Cassidy obsession by this point then? David Cassidy obsession, never. I was never through with it. I know you're trying to, you're making a point that, yes, I was into him very, very much. Uh, well, I'm, I'm, 16 I'm, magazine Tiger Beat, but, you know, I met him in later years. Uh, yes, well, that's why, partly why I brought it up, because oh, okay. I saw the clip where I think your your production team <laughs> sort of ambushed you with David Cassidy some, yes. sometime in the 90s. Yes, it was actually 2000s, in the mid-2000s. Was this Pajama Party? Yeah, so this was the American version of Pajama Party, which I originally did for ITV, but I brought it over to Oxygen hmm. in America. 
It's really good. The bits I saw were really good. <laughs> the um, yeah, that was a funny thing because uh, the kind of gambit, the gimmick of pajama party is that it's what it, it like the the idea that eleven year old girls have of like just put on your nightgowns and eat junk food till you're gonna pop and drink you know soda pop and then talk about boys and you know, watch movies together. Like that, you can never top that idea for a party, for a get-together. No. It's just flawless. And so I thought, well, this is kind of a built-in TV show idea. And, um, you know, all you need to do to make it adult for adults is to add alcohol. But um, so that was the idea of, like, that was the structure of this variety show I did, like a talk show slash variety, like stupid, fun, stupid show. And then, but David Cassidy was like my, I had a picture of him on the set, the P, PJ party set in, in LA, picture of him on next to my, my chair. And so, yeah, the producers came up with this whole scheme where they said, hey, we're going to go to Vegas. We might get to meet David Cassidy. We're definitely going to, you're going to get to see the show. But they definitely said we could go and check out his changing room. And later they just said, you, we thought you were kind of like, uh, bright and on it, but we didn't. We you were so easy to fool. Like I, we don't understand yeah. why you were so gullible. But I did just like go like, oh okay, I guess we can't meet him. But uh, they, sure because enough, they had him. Maybe like, because stashed. in your head, he's still the unattainable yes. godlike David Cassidy. I think and, you're right. And there is this. Um, there's kind of a slightly dark moment earlier on in the book where there's um, you're kind of quoting a, an article in a, either a magazine or an annual or something where, uh, and the headline the, the 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 article begins. David asks, "Can you love me enough?" Do you know? Do, can you remember? Yes. I think I've got it here, and it's quite a dark. Um, it would have been like one of these things written about him. Like he never would have said those words, but uh, the editor of Sixteen Magazine or Tiger Beat would have written that. Yeah, it was. Uh, I can't remember what the magazine was, but uh, so he's asking in the article, he said, "Could you love me enough to spend most of your waking hours in an empty house while I work at the studio all day? <laughs> can you love me enough to keep my house just the way I like it?" <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> Uh, and uh, what else does he want from me? Exactly. Well, yeah, it's a. Uh, I think you carry on. I'm weird. I'm sorry. I'm reading your own yeah. book too, but that's fine. I think he wrote in his memoir. <laughs> then he he talked about his uh, Partridge Family co-star Susan Day. Oh yeah, who played his sister Susan. Yes. And in his memoir, he said, Susan lacked the slutty aspect of a female that I always found so attractive. She was never going to say, I want to take that big piece of meat of yours, baby. Oh, so, gosh. Um, so it's really lovely that you went on to meet him and you, there was a, yeah. that you ring-fenced a, 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 a part of your personality that, that presumably still loved him yes. enough to not be deterred by these awful words. Yes, um, it was interesting because I had gone so fully into my method acting because the whole um, the, the piece, which there is a, a little clip of it on YouTube that you referenced that has just the meeting, but the whole segment that we did was like this goofy thing where... Um, lovely uh, Lisa, my sidekick, was like helping me, you know, we we're going all over Vegas and trying to track him down and going to the place where he likes to have his lemonade before he goes on stage and going to the golf course and we're in a golf cart, like screaming out who's seen David. And um, so by the time I was in his dressing room at whatever 
casino where he was performing in Vegas, and I was looking at a picture of him on the wall and think and just I was so like bedazzled. He and he came out of the the room behind me and surprised me. It was me as the eight year old responding rather yeah. rather than the the much uh, more canny and cagey adult person, which I did snap out of the eight year old thing when. We finished filming. He slung his arm around both me and Lisa and went, hey, girls, and like started to kind of like l- frog march us like back to a darkened <laughs> corner of the room. And then I just that's when I sort of realized, you know, this guy is a I'm, I'm not pre- I'm not prepared to I, I can't love him enough. No, no I, I think I feel like I can't love him enough. And maybe I'm not slutty no, enough. No one can love him enough. I think it's fair to say. Um you know what? I thought that inter- that moment, and it is on YouTube, like you say, I thought it was very interesting because there is that moment where it's like, the, you know, the eight-year-old you. But yes. there's also a kind of amusement. There is a hint of amusement at this whole scenario that, like, there's... And, I, and I've had it myself where I've met, where I've kind of interviewed people who I ad- adored or who were like... Or even if I didn't adore, they're like mainstream pop stars who... You know, in the 80s, there would have been entire, you know, there would have been people employed to keep people like me away from people like them. And there is a part of me that just thinks it's hilarious when that whole system either breaks down or has changed sufficiently for me to have access to them and to kind of have fun with them. Yeah. Um, not necessarily the fun that they might want me to have with them, but um, <laughs> not maybe not as fun for them as it is for you. But. Well, exactly. Yeah, exactly. It uh, is. It is like the you know the fabric of uh, propriety has been rend, rent 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 rendered rent asunder maybe rent asunder. That's the word. Hmm. Um, rented past tense of rent. Um, anyway, ripped. Uh, you're not supposed to be there. Is what I'm trying to say in a fancy yeah pretentious yeah, no. way. So, did you see that documentary about sort of the he's a, was it was it about his attempt to make one final album in the last year or two of it his? It was life? a hard watch, Pete. It was a hard watch. It is, and you sort of you kind of realise what what a what a sort of a shit life is in a way for terrible life. Um, so, my observation about David Cassidy when I met him, and I went on to like I. His voice was, I loved his voice, and I used to see him at the Greek theater. Like, whenever he was touring LA, I would go, and so I'd see him a few times. Um, my observation about him, though, is that when I met him, he had this palpable need that just kind of guffed off of him, this neediness um, that certain other extremely sexy, charismatic stars have. And the one who comes to mind is Robbie Williams, where it's. Um, you are part of the negotiation or the equation. You fulfill the uh, the uh, you know the what is it like the the arrangement or the relationship where they are incomplete until you, the supplicant, yeah. come to them with your worship and your um, you know open uh, thighs or whatever what, whatever what, it is. And when did, when did you meet Robbie? Uh, this had been back in the day. Yes, back in the day, I met Robbie. Oh, oh, I know it was at a, a L Awards, you know, one of those yeah. like magazine awards. And then he tracked me down. It was very flattering, like he, uh, you know, tracked me down via a show I was doing at uh, BBC Greater London Radio, right. which turned into Six Music 
or no, it turned into something else. Turned into London, London Live, maybe London Live. Um, anyway, but w- which is fine. You know, it was very flattering. It was just so funny. The best part of it was um, my producer. Suzanne Gilfillan, love her. She uh, called me and just was like kind of bemused going, um, I've just had a call at the station from Robbie Williams and he was wondering if he could get your number. And and that, and and then I was like, oh, not him again. I mean, I was just being funny because it, it's the first time it ever happened. But like it was the whole thing was worth it just to kind of get her reaction and then to say that thing. But, but it uh, is... And it yeah. is a real sort. It's a, it is a moment, isn't it? When and uh, when I would imagine not it ever happens to me, but the, I imagine it's a moment when things like that sort of happen to you because your entry point, as uh, as indeed it is for a lot of teenage female pop lovers, is is just the excitement of going to gigs, and you described that so well at the nine thirty club, yeah. and you want to be near. You want to be near musicians. You want to be in their orbit, and you know, and and it's sort of Courtney. I think my wife's written about this. I think Catelyn's written about this, but I think Courtney Lovers talked about it as well. It's um, people really give that a hard time. You know, the sort of you know, I'm not. I mean, I've read your book, so I know that that's not necessarily you. But the sort of groupy route to sort of being mm. to 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 kind of getting into the kind of pop world. Well it's an unbalanced world and you know it's a world dominated by men and there are you know if you want to be a part of that world and to celebrate to be a part of you know, it, just that this kind of amazing thing that's happening mm-hmm. and your love of pop in all its forms then that's kind of that's exciting that's an exciting that you know whatever gets you sort of into, yeah. into it in a way and well co- certainly in years before women were didn't little girls teenagers were not empowered to pick up a guitar Hmm. and um courtney is probably a good example of somebody who uh started off going the groupie route and then just thought wait a minute i there's i can do more than this yeah yeah but it's oh you know you don't want to be the muse your whole life no and um and courtney's an amazing example of someone who you know she god i mean she went to liverpool she 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 became you know embroiled with these kind of incredible musicians and then she sort of she ended up writing and performing all these she made these yeah. amazing records that my kids listen to now yeah and i mean she's actually another she's a good example of a woman with this incredible need like i just named two men who have this it's a it's charisma um but it is also a you when you break it down it's somebody who just desperately is just doing what whatever it takes for them to just for you to keep looking at them and in fact you talk about that with uh, regarding Ian McCullough hmm. and Echo and the Bunny Man just being someone whose job it is as far as you can see is just to make sure that your eyes do not leave him when he's on hmm. that stage or you know his voice is coming out of that record when you're um when you're you know it, it, it's actually i think we build it into our perception of what we actually like about um, young musicians, young frontmen, especially mm. that's actually part of the job description in a way. We kind of want that. It's it's actually enough that they just want us to look at them because yeah. they're sort of young and they're beautiful, and it's actually okay to be a. We kind of expect narcissism from mm. sort of frontmen of that age. Yes. Where it kind of goes wrong is where you have your Ian McCullochs. I think anyway. I'd like to see what you think about this, and maybe they haven't really learned that what worked when they were 22 isn't necessarily going to work when they're 52 because 
we expect more of 52-year-olds. It's Well, I think uh, the thing with uh, male and pro- probably female as well, um, older pop musicians, I just had a vision of Madonna, Madonna's Instagram flashing across my frontal lobe, but um, it's arrested development. You know, you can see why they got people who got really famous when they were teenagers or early 20s, like they want to just keep that uh, wagon rolling along um, the very... Uh, engaging Steve Jones, former guitarist of the Sex Pistols, who is a great radio broadcaster. He's done a bunch of different kinds of radio shows over the years in Los Angeles, where he now lives. And um, he's so just uh, disarmingly candid. And one of the things he has said on a few occasions is on air, he'll say, yeah, I'm just getting older. And the women I like are just the same age. Like, they stay the same age. I don't. But, you know, I can't help it. Like, what, how can I, like, he, and he really is stuck. Like, he can't not like a 20-year-old, even though he's 60. And uh, there's nothing, he just kind of got, people get fossilized, don't they? Because it's such a a forceful, you know, the, the instant, Overnight stardom is an incredible forge, you know, and you you're sort of fossilized in that in that. Yeah, I mean, you know, and it's not just the kind of the, the you know Billy Joel does it. Billy Joel sort of seems to sort of trade for a younger model, as it were. You know, just <laughs> you know, every few years. I think his his last wife was 21 years old. Oh my! And uh, he was in his well into his 50s, and he had, he actually he had children that were older than his wife. Mm. Which just boggles my mind, you know. But yeah, it's. Uh, I, I don't know. Like, I don't know if it's a thing. You can probably tell me that men find it easier just to always be. My idea of hell would be as a fifty-eight-year-old woman, which is what I am, to have to be with a twenty-one-year-old boy. Like, <laughs> I like the idea where I'd be like. Oh my God! Do I have to explain to you who Prince is? Yeah, like, yeah, like yeah, stuff yeah. like that. Like I'm exhausted. I'm just so tired. Or like I have to explain <laughs> all my cultural references. Or like, or and that's even just references. Like what food is like, like a you know a certain kind of why this olive oil is better or whatever some bougie thing like that. Or even just stuff like emotional intelligence. Or you know, I, yeah. it's just exhausting. But it seems that Billy Joel or whoever can just be like. Uh, you know, your body looks great. And that is, uh, that f- ticks all the boxes because there's only one box and it's the body yeah. looking great. Yeah, no, I, I, that's, you know, like, so my wife and I, that's, it's a discussion we frequently come back to. So what are these people talking about? What could they possibly be talking about? Yeah. How much explaining must you be having yeah. to do? Unless you love the idea of being a tutor. Like, I, you know, I'm bequeathing the knowledge of the, uh, a TV show that you wouldn't have seen in the 70s. Like, yeah. having to explain everything. Like, there was a show called Budgie. Maybe that's why he wrote, We Didn't Start the Fire. <laughs> So funny. Uh, hey, little girl, um, we're going to hook up. But before you do, here's a explainer on, on, boom, on being a boomer. <laughs> Just revise this. Revise this. Yeah. I'll well, test you in the morning. I'll test you in the morning. But meanwhile, lube up. <laughs> daddy's coming in. <laughs> oh, God. There's an image. Um, so... Um, <laughs> Got, let's, oh yeah, so that um, going, but so um, I was going to ask you probably on the back of the David Cassidy documentary, really. Um, 
you're no stranger to the BBC4 documentary uh, these days. And the your two-part documentary, uh, a kind of thorough yacht rock primer. Yes. Um, that you see, you you clearly look like you were having the best time doing that. Yes, the best time. Uh, so this is a music, uh, a genre of music that I lived through. Here's a funny thing. So being, uh, here's what's great about almost being sixty is that I have grown up through all the important. Aside, I didn't grow up during Little Richard. Um, Rockabilly, like that was before me, and Elvis was already established. But you know, to be young when disco happened, I remember being um, like fourteen or something, and disco was happening, and I was like anxious all the time, like, oh my god, I'm not going to be Studio Fifty Four needs to still be open by the time I'm old enough to get into Studio Fifty Four because I need to be there, and that needs to, be, you know. <laughs> and then, of course, by the time I was old enough, uh, um, new wave, you know, punk, a new wave was happening, and then I was going to the Nine Thirty Club in DC. But all these great um, genres, um, like I was around for. So while I was, you know, weird, these great, um, genres, um, like I was around for. So while I was, you know, weirdly, while I was, um, eagerly getting down to the import record shop, my local one, which was called Penguin Feather in Northern Virginia, or, um, the face, right. and they would listen to Duran Duran's in America consume smash hits the same way that they would read Blitz magazine or, um, the face, right. and they would listen to Duran Duran and Joy Division because it was all cool British music. So we didn't know, like, oh shit, you mean Adam and the Ants is for kids? Like, we didn't know. We no. just thought it was all like really hardcore and cool, like the fall, like it was all happening at the same time. So while I was listening to all this music, um, the only thing you would ever hear on radio would be what we now call yacht rock, but it was just that West Coast sound, which mm. was. Um, uh, Steely Dan and Hollow Notes, and it was mostly white guys uh, doing that so-called blue-eyed soul, and it had the it was very creamy and easy and uh, upwardly mobile, and it really fit in with. Um, I lived in a very yuppie, upwardly mobile neighborhood. My parents were well off by this time. My dad had uh, had uh, retired from the Air Force, and you know we just lived in a nice brand new house and. So I didn't really question anything. I didn't have to. It just seemed like it was the sensible, of course, it was the right soundtrack. And, of course, thinking about it now, I realized, oh, this very lush, rich, posh-sounding music where you can imagine it listening to it on on your yacht. It's also, it kind of works if you live listen to it in a trailer park as well because you think, well, that's out there for me. And that's how Americans think. We do think that's out there for me. It's not like in Britain where it's like, nope, I'm never... I'm never going to aspire to that. Um, and but you liked it at the time. You you weren't you weren't sort of tending more towards the kind of punk stuff and the new wave. So you you were still had. There was I liked a it all. I liked it all because I was still. Um, I would listen to the in my car. So we start driving in America. You get your learner's permit at 16 yeah. years, eight months, and then by the time you're sorry, 15 years, eight months, and then by the time you're 16, you can get it your license. So I'd be driving. I'd be listening to all the soul, actually funk, funk was the thing, funk was new, hmm. so that, so disco was turning into funk, so all the black stations would play that, and then that, of course, bled into, when you had George Benson or Ray Parker Jr. radio, that was very yachty, um, and, and then, of course, those stations would play hollow notes, and Michael McDonald and Doobie Brothers and all of that, so um, I was happy to listen to that, and uh, didn't 
was not prejudiced. Was Who not... were you most excited about meeting when you were making those two? Uh, well, the, the the documentary. Oh, do you know who I was excited about meeting? And this, it, the way we met was pretty cute. Ned Doheny. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. And it was cute because uh, our location that we were using for the interviews was actually our, our uh, where we, it was an Airbnb. So the producer, uh, director, Ben Wally, and AJ, the producer, um, and I were in this lovely home in Larchmont in the middle of, you know, Hollywood, California. And in fact, a uh, side note, if you do see that documentary and you notice there's a bunch of Emmy Awards stacked up on top of the – there's a, a, a some shelves right. in, the, in the back. And it turns out that the owner of the house was the executive producer of The Daily Show. So he had decanted to New York. It was the John Stewart Daily Show. So he had oh, all wow. these, these Emmys. But um, when I rolled up from the airport uh, – to get like they'd started some filming before I got there and then I got up to the house ding dong and who opened the door but Ned Doheny because he was already there for his interview <laughs> and uh yeah so he and he also was a, a newer discovery for me because he's a little under the radar he, yeah he wasn't one of the the you know blue chip practitioners yeah, did he, did he, he didn't really have hits did he at the time no no so he wrote hits for other people hmm. And he was part of that whole Geffen scene. Like, there's a great photograph of him uh, playing, strumming, and then there's David Geffen and there's Joni Mitchell in the background. Like, they're all kind of crowded around in a very, like, Last Supper sort of, Last Supper of Yacht Rock of West Coast Sound kind of kind of tableau. So did, was, that, was that a kind of a, was that, was that your pitch? The... No, uh, I tell you, it's one of those uh, kooky, uh, serendipitous things that that happens. And thank God it happens. And every time I see the lovely Ben Wally who shot it and put it all together, I always thank him. Because what had happened was I'd already established myself as a Yacht Rock uh, aficionado, and I'd done a, a series of uh, Radio 2 specials yeah. over the years. And um, I, but I hadn't pitched it, but unbeknownst to me, this thing was coming to life through a different route, through a production company in Scotland, and they had originally pitched it to BBC4 as a uh, a soft rock, uh, looking at the world of soft rock and how it intersected with the rise of FM radio in America. So a whole different proposition altogether, and it was the delightful Emma Cusack, who was the commissioner at BBC Four, who said, why don't we pair all this away mm. and just zero in on Yacht Rock? And that was a great shout. So she did that. And then they brought in Ben Wally, the, the director, and he said to the production company, you don't have a presenter. And I think it would really kind of ground it and, and like give it a focus if you had somebody who was like the point person. So they hadn't had a presenter. And then he went on to say, and it should be Katie Puckrick. So this whole thing could have happened without me and I would have been really annoyed <laughs> I would have been so annoyed so it just it fell into my lap um, and but you are you are the you are the go-to got yacht rock DJ now I'm the go-to just... yacht rock DJ so I yeah it was lucky because like Ben called me do you want to do this and I was like on the phone as you can imagine listening to my verbiage here but I was like blah, 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 blah. I have so many ideas and I have was so that many the documentary thoughts. where I'm trying I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if I'm getting confused with them was that the, where the Toto guys yes. were talking uh, that the, were talking about how they ended up uh, working on Thriller yes 
And that was amazing. And they're clearly still delighted and kind of a bit amused by how easily these kind of breaks seem to kind of find them. Yes, yes. So they did Human Nature, um, which is uh, just a gorgeous, um, uh, silky, creamy mm. uh, little drift away number, just shimmery. This chimes, shim, chimes shimmer. Um, but they, uh, yeah, those guys, those Toto guys and, you know, the Picaro brothers um, as well. Um, and I'm thinking about uh, that when I say Toto guys, I'm like blanking on. Oh, the, the Steve Lucather. Lucather yeah. and, um, oh, Picaro. The other Picaro. Jeff Picaro. Uh, is he, I don't know if she's still with it. Maybe no, Steve. Book, the brother. And the, the uh, Steve Luke, I never know how to pronounce. Yeah. That. Anyway, um, Lukather. Anyway, they were just Johnny on the spots for any number of sessions across all genres. So they were session guys even before they did Toto. They, I mean, they were the house. They were the band for Boz Skaggs. Hmm. Um, so they. Uh, so they're they're pivotal to this story. They're pivotal. Really. They're yeah. absolutely pivotal. Yeah. yeah. And so this this takes us back to a kind of time in your life, really, when you were sort of a, a, almost like a, a fork in the in the road, in a way, in terms yeah, of what you, what you could get into. Sorry. Well, the uh, the thing that I really enjoyed about making uh, I can't go for that the smooth world of yacht rock to give it its full title um, is that we contextualized that music, which people could dismiss as throwaway, and you know it's you know it's not meant to be like really pondered over it's kind of funny when people do analyze it Hmm. um but it really was a part and parcel of of the socio-political scene it was coming up in in america in the 70s where it was a little it was a little grittier and you know the the great um we hadn't sort of the promise of the 60s had had not been delivered and then by the time we got into the 80s reagan had introduced this whole kind of uh greed is good scenario so it had gone from more of a humble singer songwriter background into you know inflected with disco and then you had this music that was kind of aspirational and a little idiosyncratic and then of course by the time you get into the 80s where um everything is more you know big shoulders big hair big lapels uh you know big wads of cash big stacks of cocaine and then you also have um the uniformity imposed by the synthesizers, which are suddenly all, everyone is just using the same sounds. So music stops being as charming and idiosyncratic and becomes a little more uh, broad and big and and important. Hmm. Um, And really in that sort of way, Yacht Rock is a reflection of what was going on in America at the time. And that kind of stuff, I just love, that really excites me, you know, being able to connect the dots between things that you think are, like that doesn't matter. You realize this ephemeral stuff is, you know, is really the key to the story. You should, I, you know, I, th- this is. I want to, you know, this is. I want to read kind of pieces about this, and I kind of wonder. I guess you don't have enough time, but I would, I would like to read you if if you had a blog about this stuff. Okay, I would read it. All right, you're setting you're setting me a task that I need to. But you're busy in your world. You've got other loves. You've got, you know, you're kind of a leading authority on perfume. Yes, it was sort of unintentional. I uh, So my YouTube channel, which is a little 
it's not quite shuttered, but I've uh, it's a little on hiatus. But I have hundreds of reviews up there. But also my blog, they're both called Katie Puckrick Smells, because my tagline is I'm Katie Puckrick and I smell. And I uh, am fascinated by smell and you are, aren't you? Because yes. in your because because in your book you even that this comes you really you're so evocative on smells. Oh, thank you. And even you even describe the way Bauhaus smell. Yes. Yes. Tell me how Bauhaus smell. So I saw them uh, in the early 80s at the 930 Club uh, in the middle of Washington, D.C., and it was the only game in town, I tell you what. <laughs> and so, yeah, there would have been Pete Murphy, Bella Lugosi's dead, undead, undead, you know, with a light. He's like holding his own, like a flashlight under him to look spooky. Um, <laughs> and they're all just so cadaverous and skinny and exciting. And But the thing that struck me was they smelled like vegetables they just had this kind of like it was not an american soapy sudsy smell it was like kind of earthy maybe they just crawled out of their coffins yeah. but it had like kind of a peat a peat moss smell or a uh yeah just something that was like vegetal and earthy and was this a smell that maybe you grew to like that smell but was it no <laughs> i was gonna say if you did but did your feelings towards that smell uh, change with familiarity and maybe good associations um well it, it, there was no familiarity because it was just a fleeting moment as they walked past me so it wasn't like a, you know i just assumed other bands must have smelled the same way <laughs> specifically no, Bauhaus, yeah it? yeah there was kind of a Bauhaus. uh well so there is actually like a dank uh rock guy smell that has to do with the leather jacket that has been too yeah. long in the you know like they're in the cavernous like there's like cavey underneath I don't even know how to describe it but like basically dank mildewy basements where they rehearse or whatever and and they become impregnated with that smell uh, I don't know that I love that smell but it but in answer to your question I don't have judgments about smell I have interest I have yeah. curiosity yeah. about it like oh it's that kind of smell yeah absolutely and I think yeah it's um I mean maybe it's just about um intensity so maybe if you were to do a scent called Dank Rock Guy, then it would be just about getting the proportions right. Yes. And tempering well, it with other. Well, you, um, I know, you know, you think you're just saying some crazy thing. but No, I, no go on. But there is, it's not called Dank Rock Guy, but there are um, perfumes that are created to be, to smell like Dank Rock Guy. One is called Bat. It's by a line called Zoologist, so it's called Bat, and it's very like a bat cave, like dank and dark. There's another uh, one by a brand called Voronoi, which is called Deep Deep Down. Um, anyway, but yeah, there's many kind of um, And who, who might typically buy Bat or Deep Deep Down? Well, there's a shop in Covent Garden called Bloom, which has a lot of these uh, independent brands. They're like the indie, it's the indie perfume world, like indie film, indie music, right, okay. uh, indie kids. So it's indie perfume. And uh, I was in there the other day, and there were these two adorable Polish uh, young married couple with their little boy, their little toddler. And the man, the Polish young Polish man, was very adamant that he only he lo loves mushrooms, the smell of mushroom and mildew, and you know, sure enough, there were enough perfumes that interested him. I'm sure, and I, I absolutely, and this is you know, it's like music, really. It's just about you know, some people like really discordant music, you know, I, some people like just really purely sweet, sweet melodic music, and. 
most people like somewhere something that sits on the uh, spectrum maybe between the two right and um you know if i i know that i really love i'm a, i'm a big fan of melody but I, I do like to have a bit of kind of something to kind of a bit of grit in there a bit yes. of a noise or something to temper it it can't be just pure pure melody yes and so I'm just assuming what I was kind of driving at. I was, I'm assuming I don't know too much about perfume. I don't know very much at all. But it, I guess it's probably maybe similar. The the perfume world is a similar continuum. Yeah, it's um, it's interesting. There is a for in good ways and bad ways. It's similar to how people enjoy music, and the bad ways are like people being snobby about it, or like you know, wanting to be the first person to discover something new or, you know, deliberately getting into something really strange that you think you can't really love it. But they're like, oh, no, I really love this thing that's really weird. And that, you know, it makes me more hard than you kind of thing. But it, um, it, but the way I see perfume, the way I enjoy perfume and wear perfume is the same way that I enjoy music, fashion, food, which is, I love donuts, she said, gesturing to her half-eaten, seem-to-be-fully-eaten donut. Um, but I don't need to eat them every day. There was a point when I could eat them every day. Mm. Um, and I don't want to wear one outfit every day. I like all my different pretty dresses. I don't. I love um, uh, oh, my new album, which I am listening to every day, from Ace Records, which is that... Um, Bob Stanley, Pete Wiggs. Um, Is it Occasional Rain, maybe? Occasional Rain. Oh, no, Heavy Weather. Um, I Wait. think it's Occasional Rain. Occasional Rain. Is that the new one? And then the English, English Weather, weather was, the, the, was the last one. one. Yeah. yeah, so listen to that all the time. But then I think I need to listen to the Haim Sisters. I just want to have that. So the way I wear and enjoy perfume is one day I want to smell like Queen of Sheba and it's, you know, incense and frankincense and you know, roses and sandalwood. And then the next day I want to smell like Don Draper from Mad Men. And so I'll wear Ver, uh, Vetiver by Guerlain. You know, I want to smell like a sixties hmm. uh, businessman. And so it's all about uh, sensory stimulation. I wear it for myself and I just love in the same way that I, I love wordplay in my writing and in my presenting work. I just love to, I just like stimulation and color yeah and um you're yeah i totally see that and you know that's that's how music certainly that's how certainly how i listen to music and yes. you know you um the high mouth the high mouth is fantastic by the way <sighs> yes oh. yes i mean really that's yeah. uh god this just uh i'm just obsessed with that track hallelujah at the moment yeah. right at the end of the record just yeah. that beautiful acoustic track and god some i can't get enough of summer girl but um yeah no so no that's um I wanted to ask you. Oh yeah, well, but while we're while we're at the nine thirty club. Oh yes. Um, so in in the book, you mentioned you met your future first husband yes. there. Now I I be I'm kind of guessing that you maybe changed the identity because I'm yes. racking my oh okay because I was racking my brain to okay signed to a label signed at this time a, a certain label oh, yeah, yeah. at this time you will know this but you of all people will know the band yeah. Okay. Will you tell me afterwards? Yeah. Oh, great. Yeah. Okay. Um, sorry, guys. Um, so um, I just the other thing I want to go about you, you sort of mentioned. I want to ask you about your friends as a uh, when you were younger because you describe your friends 
so wonderfully. And again, you know, I, I get I would exhort people to, to seek out your. I know, I know, it's twenty years. It might be weird that I'm raving about. A book. I I love it. I, I mean, too bad this show didn't exist in 1998 when I published it. It's just such a good book. Um, Thank you. And um, <laughs> the, but these, I, I I one thing I you know one thing that really kind of uh, foregrounds good writing is just when you have these kind of thumbnail descriptions that sort of do so much heavy lifting and it might only be a sentence. And so I'm thinking about your friend Mimi Van Up. Yeah. Who's, you know, you talk about her parents never being around, so that made her house the party house. And it kind of immediately evoked to me a sort of certain kind of affluence whereby maybe the parents might not be overly protective or even interested in the child, but actually that really works. That makes that child popular and that may, their disinterest, their moneyed disinterest can mean that that's the party house. Yes. Uh, so Mimi must have been a good person to know. She was a good person to know. She was a good person. Um, she, uh, I was lucky. I was interested when I was reading your book uh, and you're talking about your anxiety going from l your little kid's school. I don't know what you call yeah, it Yeah, like here. primary to secondary school. To secondary school. And then you're in, in streams, like you were put mm. in the, like, the fast stream and then the, you know, then it's like the the numbers, you know, the, the names get called out and kids are still waiting on the sideline to, you know, just <laughs> yeah. sounds terrible but by the time I was in high school I was lucky because I was um in the states we have um advanced placement they're called AP so you get into um classes with in some cases and in the case of trigonometry it was a little too advanced for me but my English and a bunch of other classes were um like the smarter kids got in there so um bragging about being a smart kid here but also saying that Mimi was one of those yeah, kids yeah. as well like uh we I was lucky thinking about this uh in that school system in Northern Virginia to have those opportunities because we had a you mm. know just public school and we just I mean yeah American public school which means it's free not British idea of public school yeah um but yeah so that was I was really lucky to get that there's a great description um right in the same part of the book I think where um you t you talk about the great again these great thumbnail descriptions of the jocks walking around <laughs> like they have a diaper full of poo. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. I didn't I didn't remember writing that, but, the, but I'm laughing because it's true. <laughs> and then the cheerleaders they kind of waddle. They waddle. They're so muscle bound. That's what I meant. Like they can't. Their their torsos go in a V. Their their arms are so muscled that they can't just like flop next to their body. They just are held mm. out, and then they kind of waddle because they're so muscle bound. Yeah, this is, it was the same at my, you know, when I went to university, though, the, the, the people that would join the rugby club as, as soon as they got there, and then they kind of got into doing weights, but also then the lifestyle was just drinking, because they were jocks, just drinking beer all the time. So their, their body, you know, like in year one, they would be just these weedy kind of, you know, wafy guys. Yeah. And then by the end of year, by the beginning of year two, they were like these muscular kind of beefcakes. But then by year three, the beer had overtaken it. So they were just these really flabby guys who just sort of, you just knew that they would be just flabby forever. Well, you know, maybe you should have just not done the weight training in the first place. Uh, but then you would just describe the cheerleaders as being like the jocks geishas. Which is so in these like couple of few sentences, you just get this full kind of picture of this kind of whole sort of scene. But of course, by the end of the by so by the early 80s, you would be you'd already given yourself a, a mohawk, 
So you'd kind of, you may have been academically sort of advanced, but you almost seem to set on a slightly different path. Well, um, it, it was one of those things where I was always a fish out of water because through dint of not growing up in one place. So usually any community that I was in, a part of in America, I was surrounded by kids who'd all grown up there. That was just their one place that they had ever lived. But I was always parachuting in from like, hi, I've just moved from Moscow or Berlin or something. So I was always, I had wider frame of references. I was a world, worldlier kid. I'd, um, you know, seen different ways that people lived around the world. And I had a huge advantage in the fact that I lived in I'd gone to this really good school in Moscow for a couple of years, the Anglo-American school, where every child was the child of a diplomat or a State Department official or a you know, airline pilot or a you know business person or a journalist. You know, every all the kids came from all over the world, and as long as they could speak English, they could go to the Anglo-American school. So I was exposed to kids from all over the world, and the education was like uh, I have to say, I think kids' education is probably better. In you know, foreign education is better than American education. So by the time I moved back to America, I had this advantage. And this is a long-winded way of saying that I was I was sort of used to kind of people looking askance at me and trying to figure me out. And also, this this turned in this was handy actually. Once I accidentally stumbled into a career presenting TV shows, I was able to um, just get my footing. Uh, in a new situation. So because moving somewhere, moving to a new town meant that I had to kind of like get my front load, my personality, like right out there, like, hi, like establish who my new friends were and get my, establish my place. So I kind of had a certain amount of confidence in not fitting in, I guess is what I'm saying in a long, like I knew, I understood that like, there's no way I'm going to live down the fact that I don't have history in this town, but But I can turn that into a virtue. And so I think that's why I was pretty comfortable. And then I had, um, I was interested in, uh, again, the search for stimulation. So I always wanted to find, you know, what was happening in the weird music and the, you know, like dress in a fun way. And And suddenly you were in London and you had like people like Billy McKenzie walking down the street and you could just point at them. Yes, yes. Uh, um, uh, Did you know, but you know, at this point, when you were sort of here and presumably here to stay, yeah, did you know? Were you like, okay, this is this has got my home now? I'm- well, that's uh, that's kind of the reason why I ended up coming over here was uh, I'd been indoctrinating myself in, uh, you know, through uh, face magazines and smash hits and various imports, uh, you know, soft sell twelve inches and ABC and Joy Division and. Uh, Rip Rig and Panic I had that single mm. This Is It uh, Pig Bag um, of course Echo and the Bunnymen and uh, uh, all the Liverpool all scene all the Liverpool scene yeah. um, Specials Madness like all this stuff that you go on about that you're like a lot younger than me in your book like I was already a fully fledged you know proper nubile teenager and you were an 11 year old but everyone loved it you know yeah. so it didn't matter really yeah yeah so I, um, as far as I was concerned, this Britain was the, you know, that was the golden land. That was a land of milk and honey in terms for if you love that kind of music. And 
Oh, and then of course the you know reading about the new romantics, like looking at pictures of Steve Strange at the Blitz, and um, my whole background was in uh, dance, and I trained in ballet, so yeah. I love theatricality. I love costumes. Did you dressing manage up. to get to the Blitz? I know I was too late for the Blitz. I yeah. missed the Blitz again. Like I missed Studio Fifty Four, I also missed the Blitz. But hey, you made up for it because you ended up dancing with Pet Shop Boys on tour. Yes. Yes. I mean, That's what, just tell me anything about it, that. Well, it's the best job I've ever had. I, I used to say it's one of the best jobs, but I'm just going to go ahead and say it's the best job I ever had. So I had been dancing with small contemporary dance companies, and I'd done really you know, g- interesting work with great artists like Lloyd Newson with D- his DV8 Physical Theater, with Michael Clark and his uh, dance company, uh, and uh, other various really fantastic artists. And uh, but really, the pinnacle, the showbiz pinnacle of all that was getting hired to be one of the ten dancers on the 1991 Pet Shop Boys tour, which was called Performance. So that was the I think was that this I'm trying that's their second UK tour because they they held out for a while. It's one of their earlier tours anyway. Yeah, they, there was one before that. I believe Derek Jarman yeah. had staged or done you know designed or something and then this one oh my gosh they hired uh david alden i believe his name is who uh was a director at the metropolitan opera Hmm. and then they hired um i can't now in the midst of time can't remember everybody's name but basically opera directors like top of the line theater people to design the show that had a different set and costumes for every number. So every number was a discrete uh, production. Hmm. And uh, the and it had all their hits, uh, like so it was everything from West End Girls, uh, Opportunity, uh, Suburbia, um, and then yeah, would have gone all, all you know all the hit. left to my own devices. Uh, and-, and they had, but then there were things from their latest album which. The name escapes me, but October. Oh, uh, but behavior. Yeah, behavior, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then uh, being, being boring, boring was yeah. uh, actually that was not that was a bone of contention because that was everybody's favorite song on the tour. Like we all decided, like this is our signature song. It was not actually in the show, and it was not staged. And then because it was just such a, in you know, like insider crowd pleaser. Yeah. Um, Neil decided. Neil and Chris decided. Okay, we're we're going to do this for a post encore encore like even the encores were choreographed yeah and i remember that the the opera director was not happy about that because he had not like <laughs> but you know they just simply just played it for the audience yeah. but yeah we loved it but that tour just to like give you a thumbnail sketch we toured um it was 50 dates for three months um we went to japan we went to all over america i remember visiting a friend in miami and she said let's go visit um this elderly friend of mine and he's in this amazing spanish palace and next to the beach and sure enough he had a room in this uh hispanic looking like uh estate which a few years later was purchased by gianni versace so that became his his place where he was murdered on the steps sadly but um but you you can picture it in your mind yeah like i was in that place of course he would have remodeled it but we were all over america playing uh at the um one of the high points there was playing at the Radio City Music Hall. Right. Liza Minnelli came. Uh, Did you I, meet her? I, I didn't meet her, but the next best thing, you'll appreciate this perhaps, um, <laughs> which is uh, I went to the, there was a big party. Oh my gosh, that was such a lavish tour. Like I remember like years later, 
the uh, Neil saying, "Yeah, we spent a lot of money on that tour." That uh, was like kind of like we don't do that anymore. But they anyway. So we are at this post show party, and uh, Liza had been and gone. And she'd been in the front row, and Neil took me aside, and I was like, what was she like? And, of course, he knew her and had worked with her. And he said, oh, um, she particularly wanted me to tell you, and I'm like, oh, I can't believe it. I'm like, my heart is fluttering, that she's concerned that people could see under your skirt and that you weren't wearing panties. And she was a little concerned because during the suburbia number where we're dressed as these Stepford wives in these like nurse outfits with these crazy big wigs and we're like supposed to act like we're having electric shocks and we're zombies. Um, She was concerned that she could see up your skirt. And I was just mortified because that was not true. You couldn't. We're wearing like tan tights, you know, and we're like knickers and tan tights. But... Since then, the Liza effect meant that I wore two pair of knickers. Yeah, and pr- pr- preferably not skin coloured, so that but people like Liza or anyone else. Yeah, big flowers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, actually, they, yeah. So that that was kind of ex- but you know, after a while, I thought actually that's kind of you know she 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 noticed you. She noticed me. Yeah. She was concerned, like girl to girl, woman yeah. to woman, concerned. But yeah, we went to Canada. We went to all over Germany. We went to Scandinavia. And then the thing that was so charming was uh, when the tour wrapped up in the UK. We had to play Neil's hometown, uh, which was Whitley Bay, mm. and then uh, Chris's hometown, which is Blackpool. And those are not typical stops on yeah. a international. Uh, agenda itinerary so we had to play there and the show uh, the numbers were really outrageous Uh, the choreographer was Jacob Marley such a talented talented individual and uh, there were lots of like naughty like not typically sexy bits but they were like naughty or filthy or obscene yeah uh, like kind of bawdy like uh, there's it's a sin we're all dressed as schoolboys and then like our uh, our crotches kind of like had to de- de- develop a life of their own as mm. they tend to as for young people and mm. so we're kind of like miming masturbating or there's like a scary lady who comes out and she's like pleasing pleasuring us against our will so there's all these funny bits where we're kind of like being interfered with basically um especially in that one number uh and there's a there's a bit where chris has been he's tied up in his nighty and his little stocking cap against a bed <laughs> that's been tipped up and then the the scary lady and the vampire like these nightmare creatures come to kind of you know interfere with him and he what we took to saying to each other as we each went to a place where we would have per- perhaps parents coming to see us or friends, we'd go, can you go, like, go easy on the masturbating? Yeah, like, yeah. like, don't wank me tonight. So like, not, <laughs> not so visibly. And so that was Chris when like, he was no, he was no exception to that. We went to Blackpool and he's like, guys, can you like, when I'm like tied to the bed, can you not like, yeah, can you just yeah. leave it be? Cause my parents are in the audience. So I thought that was very sweet. But when on that tour, your fa- your father came on that tour, yes, didn't he? Yes, he did. And so, my did very you, religious father. Did he, did you issue similar directives, or were you not? Uh, or did that not cover you? Oh, you know what? I think it did cover me because I was uh, very much. Uh, yeah, there was lots of thrusting and things. I probably tried to cool it a little, but you know what? It, I would have been at war with my desperate um, desire. It's been somewhat <laughs> mitigated at this time by this stage of my life. But, you know, to be noticed, like I'm on the stage and there's a big crowd and I want to like project a row 
100. Um, but my dad, the funny thing about my dad was that he was very impressed with status and, you know, a big deal. So he could recognize, like, there's his daughter in this, you know, vast arena that sold out and people going yay and clapping and stomping and all that. So he's not into the music. And he did say to me afterward, like the first thing he said, my whole family were there, he said, well, it was a, you know, it's a little obscene, Kate, you know, didn't it's a little obscene. I'm like, yeah, you're right. You know, it mm. kind of was. But he also knew it was a big deal. But you get to show off about it as well. And I get to show off. No, about I mean it. he gets to. He, well, he gets. Right. He got to show off because I. He got to meet uh, Neil and Chris backstage, and I had primed Neil. You know, I told him about my dad. He's like such a mess of contradictions and such a wise ass. And he and the fact that you know he worked in intelligence in you know during the Cold War. So. Neil had a lot of time for him and couldn't wait to meet him. And my dad really delivered as well because he, because I'd said to Neil, you know, like, my dad is just going to like, he loves to put people on the spot. He likes to make people uncomfortable. He thrives on that. So just roll with it. So he did. So my dad um, says, you know, says like, pretty good show. Pretty good show, Neil. Uh, (laughs) If you want to make it better. You might want to feature Kate here a little bit more, you know, just kind of like showcase her a little bit more, like like giving it. And then and so Neil was fantastic. Like Neil was so gracious. He's like, yeah, no, she is. You know, she's so talented. Like nodding and like, yeah, and you know, you're right because she is such an asset, and I'll definitely consider that. Well, you know, he wasn't wrong, but you know, but it's good, good, good. I'm glad your dad came through and finally. You know, defended your corner, talked yeah. you, talked you up a bit. Yeah, he did. He hadn't always done it. Had no, he, so no. Pride. So, um, I've detained you for a very long time. And, it, it's uh, been yeah, so it's, fun. I mean, I, like you and I, like these are war stories, and yeah. we definitely need to like do this off mic as well. We are in Keep, the same city. We yes. definitely should convene yes. more often. Thank you, and um, you should come over to the house. Yes. Catelyn's a huge fan of yours. Well, I, you know, I've met her, I have to say, I met her many, many years ago in mid-90s at the Atlantic Club when that was like the place where, you know, mm, you'd see mm. everyone from, uh, who's the screamy guy, prodigy people to <laughs> to like Oasis people to whatever. Mm. And she she was in there. She was in the thick of it. Yeah. Uh, she was a mover and a shaker. She was yes. She was very well. We were we were kind of we were, we were finding our feet in London at the time. We were relatively young, um, but um, I want to hear more of you on Six Music. Yes, because I, you I, sort of you I, go you you're parachuted in replacing people, and I kind of feel that that needs to be just they need to get get something regular going I, on there. I, yeah, I'm I'm here. I've got my lip. Lipstick on straight, ready, ready to go, Good. ready, ready to get the call. No, I'd like. I, it's frustrating because, uh, but there's only so many slots, and uh, you got to wait for someone to, uh, you know, whatever. Like take a holiday. Or to, something. If I was going to say something else, but whatever. <laughs> uh, maybe take a holiday is a euphemism for what I was going to say. But okay. I was, I was, I was, I was helping you. I was just interceding there. Thank just, you. Just in case. Just in case I was going to say something to like dig my own grave. To queer your pitch. Que- queer the pitch. Yeah. Um, okay, and life is treating you generally well? Yes, I am enjoying life. I was, uh, we've just come through the, you know, our first salvo of the 
isolation tank and the you know the lockdown situation and who knows you know we're we're venturing forth like blinking like moles coming out of the <laughs> coming out of the underground and we may go back underground who knows what's going to happen but london hasn't lost its sheen for you has it it hasn't lost its sheen i in fact it's sheenier than ever i it's it was a big improvement when people uh discovered uh coffee good coffee so that was like a big breakthrough <laughs> Uh, what year? What year would you say that that was the kind of, there was a turning point? Oh, uh, there was a turning point probably in the mid two thousands. Like for the first breakthrough, it's funny to think of it now, but Starbucks was actually like, oh my gosh, you can mm. actually just get nice coffee. And of course, now you wouldn't think of that as an example of nice coffee. But um, it was interesting that in Britain, it was all the way until I would say. The um, British deprivations and like post-war rationing and that whole sad feel continued all the like the orange squash era was all the way up until Britpop and then <laughs> and then things change and also I think it had to do with uh, beautiful Eastern Europeans coming over like everyone got a little prettier um, not to be shallow but like the dental worked look looked a little better and then the food got more cosmopolitan. Yeah, well, you know, it's. I, th- so I think it's, it's know, really good. I, I, I'm predicting great things for Britain, is what I'm saying. I, I see it's a city on the rise. It's it's up and coming. No, it's good. I'm happy to hear it, and I think you're right. I think you know, and I speak as someone who's guilty of not making an effort. I think you know, us guys should sort of you know just try and you know make it less unpleasant for women and anyone else to look at us. And, uh, <laughs> You're doing fine. Thank you. Look, I wasn't caught. It's fine. You know, it is what it is. But um, <laughs> our time is up, Katie. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for joining us on this latest edition of the Ace Podcast. You've been listening to me, Pete Perfides, with my very special guest, Katie Puckrick. And I would also like to thank Soho Radio for lending us their lovely studio, which is why everything has sounded so great. Uh, join us next time. Don't know who the guest will be, but I'm sure they'll be great. Bye-bye. For more excellent music, you can scoot over to the Ace Records website, www.acerecords.co.uk, for all the wonderful music you could possibly need.